0: Cry Malt has been supplying the best ingredients to Australian and New Zealand brewers for 30 years. Their range of malt, hops and yeast is sure to take your beer to the next level. Proud sponsors of Brews News and Beer as a Conversation since the very beginning. Learn more about Cry Malt at www.crymalt.com. talk about beer or this week better beer as we speak with the person behind that brand nick cogger better beer has become something of a pinata for the serious craft beer drinker particularly since its top 10 finish in this year's gab's hottest 100 craft beers mainly because it's a beer that doesn't fit more traditional definitions of craft and arguably for some it's a little bit too popular But even in his mid-30s, Nick is no newcomer to the world of beer, with almost two decades in the industry already. As you'll hear, Nick discovered the world of brewing when his father set up a brew for you when he was just 16. In this conversation, we learn a lot about the industry through the prism of what Nick has learned through starting and having what he calls some unsuccessful businesses that have led him to the juggernaut that is better beer launched in partnership with the Inspired Unemployed and also with craft beer accelerator, Mighty Craft. In addition to learning the failure that has led to the success of Better Beer, we also learn a little bit about why the Inspired Unemployed aren't influencers, but are instead creators. And there is a very meaningful difference. This is a conversation I've wanted to have have for a while on Beer as a Conversation. And I'm glad that you get to be part of it as well. And I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. Nick Cogger, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Matt, Well, we caught up with you very briefly during the Hottest 100 countdown, um, which was congratulations on the result there. And no doubt yes. we'll be talking a fair bit about better beer and, you know, the Hottest 100 and the, the, the response to that and whether it's craft and things. But before, yep. but before we do, we'll uh, start with the question that we generally do, because whilst the better beer brand is increasingly well-known, Nick Cogger, probably a bit of a, you know, a a lesser known quantity. So tell us a little bit about uh, who is Nick Cogger.
1: Yeah, so Nick Cogger, I am a Torquay boy down on the Great Ocean Road in Victoria. And my roots start back in craft beer back in 2001, which is a long time ago. Um, I think I was about 16. My uh, old man set up a U Bruit, which is... So how old
0: are you now? Just like, again, not not trying to embarrass you, but just trying to get some sort of... Okay, 36, so 36, about 18 so I, years ago.
1: Yeah, so I like to talk like an old man in the industry, but I started very, very young, and yeah, feels like a long time ago.
0: Mate, after 18 years, you're certainly out of short pants, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Dad set up a um, brew-on-premise site in Geelong, um, first one outside of WA, which my aunt and uncle set up. Um, so going through high school, everyone was um, pretty excited that my dad owned a brewery. And I wasn't that excited because I was probably a lot more into um, sport and fitness than I am now. Um, so yeah, I got involved in the brewery there, um, popping in on weekends, taking mates there. Uh, my, my mate's parents used to brew there. So yeah, just getting involved in the beer industry back in the day. So yeah, that's a bit about my background. Um, I've had a couple of different brands across the years. I've had Ocean Lager, I've had Cogs, I've had uh, Lawn Summer Ale, I've had a beer called Beer. Um, Moved into cocktails and kombucha and hard cold brew, um, and all in the background, also had some hospitality interests as well. Brew for you. I mean,
0: that was funnily enough, that was my first real introduction to, yep. uh, you know, craft beer. Well, what we now call craft beer um, in those days, it was still micro brewed beer. We brewing. started to see that Brew for you model, um, and I always saw it as something that was driven by there was home brewing. Um, And a lot of people have dabbled in home brewing and it seemed to be a slightly more advanced form of home brewing without turning your garage, you know, or the spare bedroom into a um, brew kit. So it basically lets you, uh, you know, take it away from from the house. But then also the way that they were marketed, they had a huge variety of, for want of a better term, knockoff beers. So you could pretty much try beer styles or approximations of beer styles from around the world at an affordable price, and it was also a social activity. Was that the business model or the the, the, the marketing promise?
1: Yeah, so I suppose back in those days, as you remember, it was really hard to find beers that weren't outside the two major brewers. Um, you know, your Fat Yaks and those sort of um, commercial craft beers weren't on the market. So um, what you brew was able to do was offer um, punters the opportunity to trial different beers at a very affordable price, and it was affordable because... You essentially went there, brewed your own product. Um, you, the brewery would look after it. You'd come back and bottle it at the other side. Um, and you generally save pretty much all the excise. I think the excise rate back then for brew on premise might have been 4 or $5 per keg. Um, so people were able to get pretty much any type of beer for under $20 a carton. Um, so yeah, it really sort of opened my eyes to what beer was. That was my initiation. I didn't start with a VB in my hand, I started with um funnily enough my 18th um, i wasn't a big drinker leading into it we had my 18th at uh, dad's brewery um, and the beers were a mexican style corona so uh, a knockoff of the corona um, we had an india pale ale and we had a cream ale and i think can Dad you remember the names um, because
0: they always had uh, interesting names yeah they had to, to tr- names. so what was corona
1: i think it was called mexican cerveza um, I can't remember the other ones. I know that dad also had on that night a dog bolter knockoff, which might have been called Barking Dog or something like that. So for my, for someone's 18th, I don't think there'd be many 18-year-olds um, that are having IPAs and cream ales and sort of you know, a dog bolter <laughs> type beer. Um, fair to say it put us all on our ass that night.
0: Okay, <laughs> but I mean, it's ironic uh, that Mexican Gervaisa was the Corona knockoff at a brew for you, which was the early craft beer, and now we've seen, you know, Modus, um, one of the yep. foundational modern hop-driven craft breweries, uh, come out with a Mexican Gervaisa and very much craft, which might bring us Definitely. back to um, yep. better beer. Um, a little bit later on, we might harken yep. back to that, but for now... Um, what did you learn? You know, did, did you work in, in, in the, the family business at that stage?
1: Yeah, a little bit. Um, I was still sort of going through high school. Um, I knew I wasn't going to university at the end of high school, so I used to pop in on Saturdays and just figuring it out. Um, and then the, I started supplying friends' birthdays, um, surf club parties, just different parties in Torquay with kegs of beer and tapped them and sort of knew how to do all that sort of, sort of things. Um, and everyone sort of... After a night on the beer, just keep telling me how much they loved it. It was so delicious, um, you know, just having those sort of drunken chats um, as we all do. And then I think I woke up one day and I was like, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to get a commercial, liquor li- uh, commercial manufacturing license and I'm going to create a beer brand. And that's, that's what my journey is, um, to own a beer brand. From that, just
0: the brew for you, you know, was the syrups, so it was like the the yep. the, the, the malt syrup, so it wasn't going to – it wasn't an all-grain brewery. Yep. It was a little bit formulaic. Where malt you could, extract, you know, yep. Malt extract. Um, yep. And f- again, from memory, the the, the, the beer was perfectly um, acceptable, but yep. – probably wasn't the sort of high brewing out that modern craft brewers or the more recent yep. craft brewers had. So what was it that people really responded to? Was it the difference from the mainstream?
1: Yeah, I think those beers were definitely tasted cleaner than what the mainstream beers were. Remember like the craft, you know, the mash versions, you know, there weren't many of them around. Like in Victoria, there was Mountain Goat and maybe a handful of others. But you know, little creatures at that time weren't really over in Victoria. It was such a small industry. Um, I feel like the beers sort of had that s- little bit of sweetness, maybe from the malt extract um, process. Um, and it was just cleaner. And I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I think people, there was the a bit of the marketing from the You Brew It or Brew For You, which you're talking about, um, that there was less hangovers. There was a big movement on chemicals and preservatives back then. And that's what your marketing was, um, which I'll get into in a minute. But it was talking about not putting chemicals and preservatives in your beer, whether you're right or wrong. But that was how we marketed boutique beers in the early 2000s.
0: So having seen the response, was it the response that you got or did you sense as a budding entrepreneur an opportunity in terms of getting your uh, you know commercial liquor permit?
1: Yeah, so it was definitely the response. And then um, I feel like I was sort of always pretty entrepreneurial. Um, we used to sell I, me and my mate, we used to sell icy poles on the beach. Um, we used to set up like an illegal taxi service, picking drunk people up from the pub. Um, so we sort of, myself and my mate, we always were pretty entrepreneurial. Um, so finishing high school, I sort of, you know, I felt like I had to do something entrepreneurial. So I was looking at setting up a surf school. I was looking at setting up a juice bar, possibly before Boost Juice, I think. Um, and yeah, so I think seeing an opportunity in beer, um, yeah, I was 18 or 19. It was, you know, I don't think I gave it too much thought. I just thought it was fun and I thought it could have been, you know, it's so different as well, like setting up a beer label at 18. I th- uh, you know, it made an interesting story and I think that's what helped me um, selling it as well.
0: And how did that go? So, you know, I was a little bit surprised when I was just going back and doing my research for, for, for this chat that we first um, had contact, and I'd completely forgotten about this, And no (laughs) offence, but going back to, I think it was 2006, 2007, um, when I'd taken the reins of a very early uh, beer and brewer in those days, and had an email, you'd just launched Cogs Premium Lager, it was with uh, (laughs) Gary Ablett from memory.
1: Yep, so that was um, the second beer label, so I suppose we'll we'll circle back to that one, but Ocean Lager was sort of my my pride. I still have the email address. I still have some of the marketing kit. I really like the name. Yeah, so I suppose I did see the opportunity of selling beer. We just did it in kegs. Um, So I would brew at the brewery outside business hours because they were working. So normally brew all night on Sundays, filter the beer, keg the beer. Um, And then, yeah, go out there and do the sales and distribution. and it was pretty fun like you know being 18 19 setting up meetings with you know the retreat hotel and the swan and the rostown the lawn hotel and turning up there and literally having venue managers just walk straight past you because at 18 i probably looked 14 um and you know they would they'd nearly agree to sell the beer before they even tasted it um i think just seeing someone so young going in there and with a beer brand um and that was back in the time where you know it was in VB's decline um, and we were sort of knocking off a lot of their taps around town Um, and I think we worked that business well I worked that business up to around 50 sort of active tap accounts um, which was pretty cool Um, yeah so we did Ocean Lager for a while and then um, I sort of felt like I wanted to do something bigger
0: did you trademark Ocean Lager back in those days or
1: you nah, said you still got the email
0: nah. addresses and stuff, but do you have the trademark, which was, we won't come to? A- no, nah,
1: I think there's a few other ocean brands around now. But <laughs> yeah, no, I don't have the, the trademark on that one, unfortunately. I should go back and get it retrospectively. <laughs> um, so yeah, we were doing that. And as you probably remember, you had to keep um, the beers out of those brew on premises uh, chilled. So it was impossible mm. to go to a bottle shop and start selling. And you had, to, it was just too hard. So, um, yeah, I, was, um, I went into business with Gary Albert Jr. to launch a beer. Um, we went and got uh, Brian Watson, uh, created the recipe, brewed it up there. at uh, The brewery is called Mildura. Um, and well, yeah, it was. we went these, for days it. uh, these days it's brew. These days it's brewed. But it was beautiful up there when I went up there a couple of times. Um, I can't remember who the other brewer was with Brian. Um, but as you remember, like he was great at creating recipes and creating beers. Um, Mm. but yeah, that business wasn't very successful. Um, I'd add it to the list of, um, unsuccessful businesses in my career. Um, yeah, the cost of goods just didn't land where we needed them. There wasn't much margin in it. And yeah, it was probably, probably decision to fail fast than sort of keep battling away and losing more money. How did
0: you know Gary Ablett Jr. Who, because that, that, was the period Um, when he was really exploding onto the football scene and in VFL Mad uh, or AFL Mad uh, Victoria,
1: um, that was
0: a huge selling point.
1: Yeah, so it was not it wasn't. um, I don't think it's – it's definitely not a similar situation to what we're finding ourselves at the moment. I think um, a footballer behind a beer is probably not as exciting or it's not as engaging. Um, So, yeah, he's just a talky local boy that I sort of grew up with and knew. Um, So, yeah. Unfortunately, that one was probably, yeah, only six months um, in the market. Um, And then we yeah decided that it probably just wasn't worth throwing good money after bad, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) Just sort of looking back at it, it was, so what was Ocean Lager versus Cogs? Because Cogs was a premium lager and for for beer drinkers in 2022, they might forget that there was a, you know, at about the same time as craft beer was really starting to uh, show its incremental growth, um, you know that was the time yeah. when Crown Lager was still, you yeah, know, a, yeah, a respectable yeah. brand. Uh, you yeah. had the, the the premium lager it was probably on par with what we now see as the imported brands yeah. like the Pronies, the, the the Beck's that have come yeah. to be seen as the premium lagers.
1: And that was sort of the business case behind it, that I wanted to create something that would compete with those crown lagers of the day. I feel like it was around the time where Dan Murphy started to get a fair bit of swagger with pricing and everything on shelf. Just I just remember it being 39 dollars like pretty much every carton of that premium yep. beer. Um, and we weren't able to land the beer under 38 So by the time it was on the shelf, it was $60. So the rate of sale just wasn't there for that specific product. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely a premium lager as we marketed it and i suppose it was um ocean lager it was just a beer um chemical and preservative free as i marketed um you know it was in the boutique's beer space and yeah i just you know there probably wasn't as much thought behind that one as subsequent um, other brands that i've done yeah that was my first two brands and all that wrapped up around 2007 i sort of transitioned ocean lager across to cogs cogs didn't work out uh decided that it was time to regroup and figure out the next steps.
0: So that must have been just about the time that we uh, yep. were in touch, which looks like it was uh, January 2008. So just as you were, you yep. we must have come on the scene, just as you were winding down. Yeah, you don't still have the COGS, cogs.com.au isn't still around? I tried to have a look at it.
1: <laughs> don't think so. Um, I've got a bottle at home floating around. Um, but, yeah, no, that one's done. So, Anyway, we've moved on.
0: Yeah, but Phil again for, for for our listeners who want to understand how quickly not just the beer industry but the environment that it operates in, uh, you know, having found uh, the email from you back, you know, fourteen yeah. odd years ago, there's nothing on Google. There's next to nothing on oh, Google yeah, yeah. Um, that that survived. So certainly no social media.
1: Um, so, so when we you did, fail, we, we did actually. We had. Um... We had MySpace, so I remember distinctly our MySpace pages. Um, They were hard because you had to actually do some sort of coding in the background. Yeah, there was nothing. I remember doing sales calls, um, and I do talk like I'm an old man, but I remember doing sales calls, and the night before, I'd have to photocopy the mailways um, and draw lines of where I had to drive and times. um, I can't even remember if I had a mobile phone. Like, I just used to have to just turn up. Um, Yeah, it was definitely a different time. Yeah, it was fun. And I think there's still like a bunch of people, you know, the Coopers reps um, that were coming into the market, you know, uh, Frankie, Uh, Tommy Delmont was out there pushing Mountain Goat who, you know, these are the guys that I still talk to to this day about beer and we have banter and we talk about Gab's results and where it is now. And I think some people might look and go, oh, this, you know, we've just gone better beer and created noise. But, you know, I've been doing this since I was 16, the beer industry, um, and it's been, you know, hard work. We've made money. We've lost money. But, yeah, I like to think that I've been around long enough. It's probably, yeah.
0: But I'm, uh, and again, and we'll come back to this. But you know, I'm, I'm uh, fascinated with the comment you made about it. It's, we'll add that to the list of unsuccessful businesses because it's one of those. I <laughs> end even saying, um, you know, fail fast because that's one of the things yeah. that people who are professionally entrepreneurial, you know, I, I think yeah. there are a lot of people who think that business either. You either start a successful business or you don't. Not that every failure is actually a step on the progress yeah. to learning, which is one of those fascinating business concepts. Um, but we'll come back to that. You did say so. You, you moved on from Cogs. What was the uh, yeah. the, the, the 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 next yeah, step so in I the think, chain?
1: I think failing, um, yeah, failing that time really made me have a good think about what I'm going to do in the future. Um, I wasn't going to go get back into the beer industry straight away, um, but I loved hospitality beer brewing and everything. So I sort of, I remember sitting there, um, you know, maybe a week after the decision was made to um, close it up that I came straight out of high school and had that attitude that I sort of knew everything like most people at that age do. And some people might say I do currently, um, <laughs> but I didn't do, I, I just I needed to learn. I needed to learn how to actually run a successful business um, and learn off someone and sort of be taken as a mentor Um, so I used to be, I'm an avid reader of BRW and one of the um, rich under 40 members was a guy called Rick Monday, Geelong guy. He owned a bunch of pubs up and down the great ocean road in Melbourne. And I got his contact details, reached out to him and said, Hey, my name's Nick. I sell some beer at some of your pubs. Yeah. He sort of knew who I was. Um, I said, look, I'm closing that down. I need to learn off someone who's, uh, who's done it before, who's made a success of business. Um, just need to do something. Uh, he gave me a job pretty much straight away. I think whenever you brush on someone's ego like that, sometimes that you, it, they reciprocate and give you what you ask for. Um, but yeah, I went and worked for the Monday Group Hotels, Cross Torquay Hotel on Lawn um, in a sort of marketing role. Um, and then I got really taken under the wing into operations and running businesses, um, auditing pubs. And this is all still when I was pretty young. So yeah, I moved into the hospitality for a number of years. Subsequently, I'm still in hospitality with a venue that I own in Torquay, um, just down on the beach called Front Beach.
0: I was going to say, feel free to give it a plug.
1: Yeah, Front Beach Tap House. Um, it's been in Torquay for a while. It's got some great beers down there on tap. Um, so, yeah, I went and did an apprenticeship and he taught me things that, you know, work ethic, um, tenacity, negotiating with suppliers, you know, picking up on the minor details and really gave me a fast-track Um into running a business albeit that he's probably didn't end up as successful as he started he um, went into receivership probably 18 months into um, my tenure there so I mean I learned I guess again what not to do and I saw firsthand of a, a big implosion of a you know a hundred million dollar business
0: yeah and, and what what did you learn from that what you know what did you see that you've learned to avoid
1: yeah I don't want to speak to, but I think taking advice from people that have expertise in certain areas so If it's your finance team telling you to pull up, if it's your accounting, if it's an operation saying you need, you know, just listening to other people, not always having the answer. Um, And it's something that I use now, even with this scaling um, of better beer, you know, actually listening to, you know, Mark Hazeman and Cam Buckland and Andrew Simon, all these people at Mighty Craft that have been there, not so much to do it themselves, but they've been there and seen brands go from zero to a hundred in no time at all. so, yeah, I learnt that. Um, I think I got a better eye for detail um, and, yeah, it was pretty fun. I used to work really hard. We'd do, you know, your normal nine to five and then I'd go down and promote a nightclub in Warrnambool until 3 or 4 a.m. on a Wednesday, drive to the other side of Melbourne to Frankston, do another one till three or four in the morning, Thursday, uh, Friday night in Lawn, Saturday night in Torquay, sleep all Saturday and then back to do it again. I think, you know, Rick and the guys, they used to have this work ethic where it would be be at work at 6.30 in the morning and don't be the first one to leave in the Arvo, um, which probably is not healthy these days. But, I don't know, sometimes that grit, um, it can help when you need to actually knuckle down and just problem solve. So when Rick finished, yeah, I decided that I'd get back into beer when he went into receivership. So he'd sold the Lawn Hotel to the Upham family. They asked me to run the hotel. I said, I'd run the hotel if you sell my beer. We agreed, shook hands, and I went down and ran the Lawn Hotel for um, three or four years, which was even more fun.
0: And what did you learn? Again, um, I'm fascinated by what you learned through that process of uh, you know having another beer brand. This would have been yep. uh, looking at the history around about the early 20-teens?
1: Yeah, so I think around 2010-ish, something like that. Um, yeah, went down to Lawn. Uh, lawn was good. It was um, We were just transitioning the pub from being 100% CUB to putting a mountain goat uh, tap down there Um, it was tommy's first tap outside of like a you know a major city so he was pretty pumped um craft beer on the great ocean road um so yeah i i sort of had a bit of a still had a passion a back burning passion for having a brand um hospitality is great it's just really hard to scale and when you scale you're still only scaling with money and that doesn't really make sense but you know every hospitality if you buy a pub you've still got to borrow a bunch of money and then it can only give you a you know an amount of return based on the site whereas i always mm. wanted a brand um so yeah I, at lawn hotel i think i started um talking with a previous business partner we own, used to own a kegs on legs franchise together um, down in victoria um, and he had a company called mr mixer which um, was cocktails on tap the first commercial Cocktails on Tap business in Australia and I joined forces with him and sort of took on the sales role and you know we did a bit of product development and we launched Australia's first espresso martini commercially available so yeah I sort of always had a hospitality and I've always had a brand that I was trying to scale at the same time.
0: I just wanted to jump back into when you put Mountain Goat on for the first time so can you remember roughly when that would have been?
1: Uh, I'm starting to get bad with years, but I'm going to say. Oh, so am I. But uh, uh, looking at the period you of the
0: venue manager there, it was according to your very out of date LinkedIn profile that you've acknowledged that you don't really (laughs) update. But it was around about 2009 to April 2013. So I'm just uh, I'd just be interested in your recollection. First week I was there, craft beer had started to become established, but it hadn't really become what we're seeing now. And I'm 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 fascinated in the thinking, um, for putting you know, like one of the original craft breweries on, uh, you know, did you have to really sell it to the venue owners or did you have the discretion to do it and you saw the potential and how did it go?
1: You know, I definitely had the discretion to be able to do it. Um, Just being involved in the industry the whole time, I think when I got there I was like, all right, we need to put something on tap that's different. Um, You know, I always idolised Mountain Goat growing up, you know. See Dave and Cam was like seeing... I don't know, Chris Hemsworth for me. I remember walking past them in meetings. So yeah, putting Mountain Goat on was pretty much a no-brainer. And yeah, it went really well for us. I think that was around the time maybe when Fat Yak was launching. You'll probably correct me because you've got a very good knowledge of around those timelines. And so we were getting a lot of pressure off CUB being an uh, AHA sort of aligned hotel and, you know, grand final tickets. But We were able to keep Mountain Goat on there for a number of years and it was high tail Ale back then that we used to sell um, and then transitioned to Steam Ale. And how did it go? I think it went well. You know, when you had an influx of Melbourne um, tourists down, so for a bike ride or a run or something like that, it would be the best-selling beer because that's sort of what, you know, I suppose the cyclists were drinking. I think they had a bit of a, um, you know, a really good following with sort of that sort of Melbourne crew. You know after that then we had different beers coming in um you know local beers from the otways and um, whatnot
0: just as we go i'm looking around about october 2009 from the look of it uh Fat it was so just just for for listeners who are um yeah. uh are wondering you know when that happens so uh yeah <laughs> so we were talking about october 2009
1: yeah and obviously that was a product brought out directly to compete with hightail ale i mean talk about copying a label, like putting, you know, a yak instead of a goat and, you know, a similar beer profile. Like, yeah, it was pretty, um, it was pretty interesting. And I'm sure you've spoken to Dave and Cam about that period of their business as well. When you put it on and it went quite well, was there much pressure to put more craft
0: beer on at a a venue like the Lawn Hotel? Or, you know, what is the impediment? Because we do hear that, you know, craft breweries often do very well when they're put on tap. So there seems to be a consumer pull through, but what's the business case against putting independent craft beer on a on on a tap bank like that?
1: It probably just comes back down to contracts back in those days, which were stronger than they are now. I think you know nowadays they normally have like a seventy con- percent tap contract or something. Back then we only had one free tap to play with, so you sort of had to pick a pick a winner, and that was it. Um, obviously, with Fat Yak at launching nearly the exact same time as we put it on down there, we were probably getting a lot of pressure for Bohemian Pilsner and Fat Yak and all those other beers that were coming out of Matilda Bay to support them. And as a business owner or as a business manager, you can't, it's hard to say no to CUB um, when the owner, you know, goes to football, goes to the races, goes to all those perks that, you know, Mountain Goat can't provide. I think they, Tom used to say, why don't you bring all the team up and have pizzas on a Friday night in um, Richmond? I was like, that sounds great, but I'm going to the AFL Grand Final on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a little bit tricky. And look, I, um, hand on heart, it probably wasn't my own call. But, yeah, I, d- I don't think like Lawn progressed into like a craft beer-focused venue probably still to this day. Um, I think, yeah, I probably can't speak too much for what they are, but we are seeing like my venue in Torquay, which is – um, pretty much only craft beer. I think we've got carton Draft on, and that's about to get the boot. Um, and the rest of them have you got are better sort of, beer on? Uh, of course I do. But it may <laughs> sound silly, it may sound like it. of course, but it is the number one selling beer at Front Beach, and it's not linked to the venue. We don't promote it. It just it has overtaken um, Stone and Wood at the venue for the number one wow. selling beer. There you go. Okay.
0: Well, we'll, we'll come back to that because I, I, I do want to explore yeah. the whole question of what is craft these days in this post-craft world. So, okay, so we're looking back at probably about, you know, 15, 16 years ago and you you had your summer uh, ale that was made at Opway Estate. What was your your next move in in the brewing industry or what was your next move in business?
1: Yeah, so moved back to Torquay. um, I opened up a burger restaurant in Torquay um, and that's when I had Mr Mixer so we had espresso martini on tap and that was our hero product Um, and we had incredible success there. We were selling a lot um, and it was just before Lexington Hill and Kalua and everyone else sort of tried to replicate what we were doing, um, so I did that for a number of years and really enjoyed it and felt like we got a lot out of that business. Um, but I'd always been looking for something that I would have just on my own. Um, I was a minority shareholder in that business, and what was my next thing? Am I doing another beer? Am I doing um, a soda water? Am I doing sounds silly? Am I doing a private aviation business? Which I went fairly far down the track. Am I doing pasteurized eggs, um, which I went fairly down the track? What am I doing next? Um, that's something scalable. Uh, so normally on a Friday night or a Saturday night, I'd spend time sort of researching business and different things that's happening overseas in the UK, Europe, um, in the USA. Um, and yeah, I stumbled across um, a company called Boochcraft, which was a sec- twice fermented alcoholic kombucha out of California um, and obviously it, came across um June shine so these two massive players and these guys looked like it was just boom time for alcoholic kombucha um, so this is probably maybe 2017 and yeah i went out and created an alcoholic kombucha brand um, and secondary fermented it so i went back to my brewing roots um, fermenting kombucha is just just a nightmare and i wouldn't recommend it to my enemies um, but yeah i launched a brand called k which i think it um, so with the acetobacter, so, you know, kombucha, the process is, um, yeast and bacteria. One converts into ethanol. The other one eats the ethanol, um, that's produced. And then it gives you a pretty much a 0.5 or 0% kombucha, which we see on the supermarket shelves. Mm-hmm. Um, what we wanted to do is make it al- even further. We wanted to make it alcoholic. Uh, it would have been just way easier to create a, um, a vodka base, but we did do a secondary ferment. Alcoholic kombucha, so yeah, I went. All right, this is the one. Um, let's go all in. Why didn't you just do a vodka base? Because I would have thought that
0: that would be cheaper and a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, efficient, um, particularly when price yep. point for something.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yep. Where were you <laughs> when I started doing it? Now, I think um, I was trying to follow what was happening in the US, and that was secondary fermentation. It apparently gave it a better flavour profile and probably all just marketing stuff. So I thought, oh, we'll just do it this way. Um, we were early. There was no one else doing it in Australia. There was no real text. Like, it was a new category. Um, so, yeah, we, anyway, we, with the brewing partner that I used down in Geelong, we got it to ferment and we created an alcoholic kombucha to 4% ABV. Um, and, yeah, we launched that with, you know, relative success. And so when when did you launch that?
0: That's looking at 2018, 2019.
1: Yeah, I think around then. So, yeah, we went and sold it into Dan Murphy's and BWS, and I set up a distribution network with agents pretty much across Australia. Um, we had ALM and Paramount distributing it. Um, and it was like, it was seriously easy to sell in. I think venues, this was a, you know, back then, it was only two or three years ago, there wasn't as much innovation as there is today. It was before the Seltzer wave, yep. Definitely before Seltzer. I think Ampersand, um, that vodka Am brand, was around, but it was, you know, they were doing their thing. Um, and the selling was easy. We were getting heaps of independence. We we're getting on premise. Um, but what we were finding, it was just getting hard. You know, it was hard to get the consumer to pull it off the shelf. Um, and buy it, I think, we're sitting just probably a bit high in pricing. Um, but subsequent to that, um, that's when I reached out to MightyCraft to see if they wanted to invest, help me scale, um, and, yeah, help me market the product.
0: Had you launched Nosh um, Boozy Seltzer at that stage, or were you just K Booch at that no. stage?
1: Yeah, I was just K Booch. So I launched K Booch, and um, and that's when I emailed Mark Hayesman from Mighty Craft and said, "Hey, I've got this alcoholic kombucha brand. We've got maybe six hundred distribution points. Looking for investors. Let me know if you're keen."
0: That wasn't after you heard him on Bruce News, was it, by any chance? <laughs>
1: uh, no, no, it wasn't. Okay,
0: no, could, so, there was a, there was. A, I think they got a flood of inquiries yeah.
1: after uh, that yeah. first podcast we did. No, I've heard you talk about that. No, he um, actually got put in touch with him with a publican from Adelaide who said that there's a guy that's investing in startups and he'd be really keen to talk to you. So yeah, I just had a – I sort of had a warm intro into um Hazy.
0: So what was your pitch to him when you had an alcoholic kombucha? Obviously, 600 uh, distribution yeah. points around the country, and it was a fairly novel product in those at that stage.
1: Yeah. Um. I think he, I, and probably a lot of people in the industry thought that hard kombucha could build on the back of just normal kombucha in the supermarket. You know, this is when Remedy and Nexper and everyone were just booming, like selling, you know, just an absolute boom of an industry, the kombucha category. Um, but it also sort of coincided when the supermarket price war started where you could get a six-pack of Remedy for maybe $6. Um, so it was, we were trying to sell a $23, $24, four pack they were trying to sell a six dollar well they were saying a six dollar four pack where you could put in your own spirit if you wanted um and yeah i'm not saying that was the only reason that alcoholic kombucha didn't work um but it's probably a contributing factor so does it still survive no we finished k-booch maybe 18 months ago Um, okay so we we decided that we weren't going to pursue that one um we saw hard seltzer coming we had retailers sort of asking us for some innovation um So we sort of made the decision that K-Booch, the company that um, Mighty Craft invested in, would now become Torquay Beverage Company and it would become an innovation hub um, for new products. So the first one out of the rank was Nosh. Um, So a beer-based seltzer, really good support from Coles, really good support from EDG um, and Independence. Um, And then we probably had a pipeline of maybe 20 products that we're going to have a crack at over the next sort of two or three years. Um, So we've done a hard cold brew called Spruce as well, um, which is on shelf at the moment. Um, We've probably had two other products that we were going to launch this year um, in partnership with Pinnacle. uh, And we've decided to pull out of any NPD at the moment just while Better Beers um, doing what it does. It's sort of, yeah, it's, it's taking up most of the time and it's probably... The thought of having to create a new another new brand or another new product's a bit daunting. So we've sort of made the decision that Torquay will just focus on Better Beer um, and Nosh as well. Okay, so Nosh uh, continues. Nosh continues, it's going really well. Um, yeah, I think we're up maybe eight hundred distribution points. Um, got some NPD coming later this year, but yeah, that'll be it out of my little stable of brands.
0: Okay, and well, we might come back to that, but we might introduce uh, Better Beer now. So what was the... the, the or- <laughs> I, I'm very mindful that some of uh, the history is subject to uh, litigation at the moment, so we're not going to... Just so the <laughs> listeners know, we're probably yeah. not going to touch on the passing off um, or, or, or the current court case, because um, that's not really relevant to, to this chat. So, um, But
1: you know, what, what was the origins of Better Beer? Yeah, so Better Beer origin... Um, so when we... T- we did K-Booch. We were doing a heap of music festivals. Um, I saw on Instagram these boys called the Inspired Unemployed. They had 10,000 followers. Um, I thought they were funny. I thought they sort of suited my brand. So I paid them, I think, 100 bucks each to come to a music festival and just do what they do. So you got them pretty cheap. <laughs> got, them, got them a great deal. Um, that was their first job, they said. So it was, yeah. Anyway, so we crossed paths. We had a great day at the music festival. By the time they got there, I think they were at 50,000 followers. Um, and that would have been October 2019. And then by Christmas, they would have had 200,000 followers. So they just started exploding um, off the back of their first gig. I tell them it's sort of all all, that, all my fault, how they blew up. But no, so that was the origin of probably the Inspired Unemployed. And we stayed in touch over the years. Um, the origin of Better Be is a little bit different. So um, on my NPD, um schedule the last product that we were going to launch was um going to be a low zero carb beer um it was going to be the last because mighty craft had plenty of beers in the portfolio at the moment and we thought that the um rtd market might have been an easier one to pick off so we, i always had plans to do a zero carb beer um and that was off the back of watching Michelob ultra um boom in the us you know it's a top mm-hmm. three beer there um, and the stuff that I've read is that it's on the back of White Claw. Not everyone just wants to drink White Claw all the time in the US. Sometimes they want a beer, and it's a similar, you know, similar calories, similar sugar count. Um, so, yeah, I sort of thought, you know, maybe three or four years down the track once we've knocked off all this other NPD, um, I'd move into a low-carb, zero-carb beer and see if I can make a national brand out of it. Um, so, yeah, when the boy the Inspired Unemployed, um, reached out to me, they were getting hit up by um, the big brewers to do a similar type thing um, where they would own a brand or get a sales commission off a brand or something like that. Um, And they were getting hit up all in this one period from all of them. Um, So they reached out to me for some advice and I just told them to go for it like there's nothing wrong, you know, go out and do it, make some money. Um, And they said, look, one of our plans has been to own our own brewery when we you know, get older, I guess. Um, And I said, cool, go for it. And they go, can you tell us what do we need to do? And I sort of gave them maybe 10 things to start with, um, maybe 20 things to start with. And, yeah, they reached back out probably an hour later and said, would you like to do a beer with us? Um, We're thinking of doing, you know, a craft beer, you know, the general pale ales and XPA, those type of beers that they were sort of thinking. Um, I sort of pushed back and said, look, I can do one of those beers, I don't. Feel like I have um, have that in me. It's really hard. You need a, a real origin story. You need to have a rock star brewer. You need to have a you know a home essentially to start a craft beer like that. Um, but I said I've got in this bottom drawer a uh, a little business plan for a zero carb beer. Would you like to see it? Um, as soon as I as soon as I said that to them, they were all over it. They were you know one hundred percent committed to doing this type of beer. Um, and they felt like it was something they wanted, but they didn't know, you know, they didn't know they wanted it until they heard it. So I guess that's the um, that's the origin of better beer. And
0: just jumping back to Nosh, for example, and I'm looking at the the, the Nosh page where you know Nosh is yeah. no shit. Basically, there is no shit in our drinks, and we stand for no shit. So, uh, you know, just as we've gone through this, this, this chat, I'm, I, I go back to the brew for you days when there was no shit in our beer, no preservatives. So, you know, that seems to have stuck. But then uh, the the very next line is we're not an influencer-style seltzer. We're keeping it real and we're not (laughs) afraid to play the man.
1: Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. No, the backstory there, (laughs) though, is um, we we did sort of hope to do nosh with, um, call it influencers, pure play influencers, but we sort of decided against that and we'd go anti-influencer just to really mix it up. Um, and then you're about so inspired unemployed aren't influencers. So that's there's two different they no, So they're creators. So an influencer sells other people's products. A creator creates their own products and creates content. And that is a clear distinction if you look up the social media definitions. <laughs> But seriously, if you look at a pure play influencer, they'll be promoting 15 different products in a week just to get the cash. Creators create, and that's what these guys do. They really have helped create this brand from the bottom up. S- stop smirking. <laughs> oh, no, no, uh, trust me, that's not a
0: smirk. <laughs> that's okay. You can believe that. That's, not, that, that's a smile, <laughs> not a smirk. No, it, it was, again, yep. like it was a legitimate question, but then... Um, you know, when you do come to look at the uh, un- in inspired unemployed, um, you know, what would what you have created with them? You know, it all started when two of your favorite battlers from Sydney, South Coast, Matt Ford and Jack from uh, Unemployed, met Nick Cogger, a health conscious drink enthusiast from Torquay, and they talked about beer. Um, you know, then you, so so when you look at some of the, um, for want of a better term, buzzwords that, you know, get thrown in around the marketing of, of yep. a product. Um, health conscious yeah. and alcohol are two words or two ideas that sit very uneasily together. Um, you know, yeah, I agree because yeah. of, of, of the alcohol. Is, is there a challenge? Like, is it, clearly, marketing, yeah. um, and, and clearly, there is a, yeah. a market for people who want to feel better about not changing their <laughs> drinking behaviour. Yeah, is you know, is, is there a risk in um, putting those concepts together?
2: Yeah,
1: I, I don't think there is really a pure risk. Um, in doing it i do understand like your position i suppose with better for you or health conscious beverages but it's probably you know if you are having an alcoholic beverage let's just say there's a box of bright colored vodka based um rtds there and if you're a, if you're drinking 10 standard drinks a week or 20 standard drinks a week you know you surely you'd be better having those standard drinks in a brand like Ampersand or Nosh or Hard Fizz or Fizzer that doesn't have all that sugar attached to it. And that's all better for you. is it just? It's pretty much just the sugar that you're trying to cut out or the carbs or something like that. So it's not actually better for you. We know what happens when um, you digest alcohol and it goes and it stops processing any other, um, you know, any other energy sources in your kidneys. And we get that. But, you know, if, if you've got to make a choice between one or the other, maybe take the better for you choice.
0: There is no hint of criticism in this. This is just the idea that, uh, you know, I, I always like to explore is, you know, at what point does accuracy give way to marketing, you know, and uh, certainly low sugar is a, you know, is something that's demonstrable and it's demonstrable on the labels. But marketing always seems to go that next step where it sort of sells the idea. It doesn't, you know, sort of educate the market. It sells the idea. And, you know, Better For You does go beyond the idea that it's just low sugar. You know, at a time when people want less sugar, it does offer a little bit more than Mm. just that.
1: I think the industry is doing a good job with, um, you know, pushing people to learn more about alcohol, um, there probably isn't, and it's not mandatory, but there probably aren't many brands that don't have a DrinkWise logo on the back. Um, whether people read it and go to the website and learn more about alcohol or not, but I think as an industry that's a pretty, you know, having something like that on your can where people can go and make educated decisions, see how many standard drinks they should have a week. If they use that advice, because we can't, as alcohol companies, be doing everything, we can't promote drinking, drink. you know, we can't promote how, Everyone should live their lives. But if they can, if they use better for you alcohol and possibly drink-wise in conjunction, I'm sure they're going to make better decisions.
0: But again, even bringing better for you alcohol together, you know, because alcohol is alcohol. There isn't a better for you alcohol. There are better for you you beverages. um, You know, so beverages with low sugar um, are, if you see sugar as being unhealthy, then it's better for you.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. So there's not a better for you alcohol. You can't have a, yeah, you can't have a better for you vodka. But when that yeah. vodka is around other liquid, you can't have a better for you drink. And I think that's what we no. market anyway. I don't think we really say the word better for you alcohol, better for you beverage, I think we say.
0: Now, coming back to better beer, craft. What is craft beer these days? Because, you know, it, it's the hottest 100 craft beers. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, done exceptionally well very, very quickly in that space. And yet, you know, in in going back to when you were um, just getting started, you know, as as an underage, you're working, you know, so seeing the uh, brewing industry craft beer had a very, had a different meaning to, you know, not qualitatively, but, you know, substantially what a beer like uh, better beer reflects, you know, the use of enzymes and some of the the, the brewing techniques that go into it were were vastly, uh, were, were very differently viewed.
1: No, I totally agree there. Um, I suppose, I suppose, what is craft? I don't actually know. I suppose you know, knowing that I've been doing this interview for a while and probably having some banter with you over the last couple of months um, offline as well, I don't particularly know what that definition is, and if it does come down to brewing with, brewing without enzymes and um, other bits and pieces, then maybe we don't fit in the category of craft, and you know, maybe we don't. I'm not sure, but I, I do know that we entered the um, the Gab's Hottest 100 with the intent of going well. Um, as time went on, we decided that we wouldn't push it as hard as we were going to. Um, we didn't use Inspired Unemployed platform. We promoted to our followers. So the people that have migrated from their page or drank our beer and followed. So we didn't really go out there trying to get sort of cheap free votes. We were getting votes from our customers. Um, yeah, and I'm probably deflecting away from that question that you asked at the start and moving into... And, and, and mode, I can I honestly say
0: it. that that's not a dig at better beer in, in any way, yeah. because it is a question that we've asked, you know, when Brewed IPA came out, uh, I, I, I copped a bit of a hiding from some of the craft beer community, because I said, well, we finally have lost any meaning for what craft beer means, because Brewed IPA yeah. relied on, uh, you know, enzymes. Um, so and these days we're seeing beers made with corn and rice and cane sugar to lighten the body proudly by breweries that once would have walked in the other direction
1: i honestly think that the i think we're less controversial than um than brookvale union ginger beer getting in the top 100 to be fair but the focus has really been on us um i'm pretty sure brookvale union's a vodka product in it i think it says it on their can um okay so yeah i i don't know i'm happy to deflect to the ginger (laughs) beer that was on there
0: (laughs) yeah and again it wasn't to put better beer on the spot i was it was more a case of whether you had any views about the the industry generally um and 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 whether we're we're seeing the end where as you've heard me say it's a post-craft beer world and beer is just beer again
1: yeah and i think that's where we're at with it like you know, yeah, it's called the Hottest One Hundred Craft Beers. Are we defined as the craft beer? I'm not sure. We haven't gone through you know, I don't think there is a definition for gabs for the entry. But, you know, I think there was a lot of people just really angry that we were on there and you know, their hero brands weren't there. Um and we get that and it's just it's interesting seeing the comments. But, you know, hopefully within a year or two we've got those same people that were really call it cross with us um being in that top 10 also backing us in because we're not there to sort of disrupt the craft top 10 or the craft 100 category we're there to go after the big two brewers um, and that we we make no apologies for you know that's what we're going to try and do um so hopefully we can go from sort of hated with those the craft beer sort of um people are having an opinion to maybe they're backing us in because we might be able to disrupt the big two brewers
0: do you think that the craft for for what used to be called the craft beer industry plays in its own space a little bit too much you know that it it has limited itself by its own rhetoric Um, and and here I'm minded by uh, 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 Burley Brewing for example that launched Big Head uh, over a decade ago um and you know certainly lost a lot of credibility in that hardcore craft phase but it was a brand that has seen them grow steadily and really you know successfully
1: yeah the hardcore craft person are probably more fickle than most i think they jump on you know the next exciting brand you know whatever it might be at the time and we know at the moment it's probably mountain culture like that's where the craft beer real end people are and To be fair, I was at Beer Fest on the weekend and the first two beers I had were out Culture, Australian Hop and their California Dream West Coast IPA, and they're delicious beers. But I think that the that real high-end craft beer drinker, they're not going to be with the brand in five or ten years, which makes which makes it tough as a brand. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I think is the craft industry pigeonholing themselves? Maybe. Maybe with Stone & Wood, how they've sort of transitioned into um, their clear bottle uh, Green Coast brand. I think we're seeing a lot of craft beers trying to do a lager or a draft or something like that. I think that they're probably looking to escape the craft beer bubble. It's um, it's super competitive. Like you, I, I just wouldn't enter the category as a business owner on my own right now. Um, and, yeah, I think people need to just look outside that little – you know, the Pale Ale, the XPA, the Pacific Ale box, and maybe, yeah, look for something different. What has been the success of Better Beer?
0: You know, a lot of people want to point uh, to yep. the Inspired Unemployed association with it in some ways the same way that Bolter people pointed to the surfers, even though they were never as big yeah. a part of the brand as I think some people wanted to see them as.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously... Like, we went into it hoping that Inspired Unemployed would bring eyeballs, 1.3 million followers, TikTok, everything. We thought they'd bring followers um, and people to trial the product, which is the hardest thing when you launch a brand. Great Northern didn't launch with a huge trial. You know, all these brands didn't launch with consumers just picking it up off the shelf. And we had that benefit. We definitely had that benefit of people just buying it because they trust the boys and they believe in them. And they also want to see the Aussie battler go well. We're lucky enough with our partnership with EDG, so we get to get shopper data, um, which shows um, customer retention, um, switching, um, and shows it demographics. And what we're seeing and what we're getting told is we've got the same um, retention as some of the rusted-on great Australian brands. People aren't just buying a six-pack and not coming up. People are buying it, and it is becoming their regular beer. Um, So we feel like with that specific consumer base, it's gone past the Buzz, which was the first sort of three months of it being on on market, um, we definitely think we're creating something that, you know, this is the brand for this next generation. As you recall, what Carlton Cole did back in the day, Carlton Dry, and what Great Northern are probably doing at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's it's good to see. And another amazing insight is we call the inspired employees sweet spot under forty. So under forty is their job; they go out there and get that customer. And then it's the brand's job, it's my job, and our brand manager Hannah's job to go get the over 40s. And we haven't started really any marketing because we've still got huge supply chain issues. Um, But at the moment we're sitting about 40% of our consumers are over 40, which I don't think anyone would have been able to guess. Um, We would have thought that would have been much lower, like 10, 15%, but it's showing that this brand's resonating pretty much with the everyday Australian. Um yeah so it's pretty exciting times. What is it about the beer then?
0: Yeah you know, if it's if it's not the inspired unemployed and I guess you can never fully divorce marketing from product um particularly yeah. in a space like the, the brewing industry what is it about yeah. the beer or the brand that is resonating with such a wide group of consumers?
1: Yeah so I think I think it looks cool it looks cool on the shelf um I think we get stock weight um at Dans and BWS with the partnership so as you'd know, you launch a brand, you might get 100 bottle shops or 200 bottle shops or something like that to start with, and they might buy one or two cartons and then put you on a shelf. Whereas we're getting, uh, we've got every, we're one of three beers in every single dance and BWS, which is astonishing to even think. And when they can have stock, we've got the floor stack in the cool room, we're out the front, and then we're in the fridge. So I think like having this brand all over the place, people might just go, oh, we'll give this one a crack. Um, and then they're coming back to it. Uh, we've launched stubbies, so that gives us another facing in most of the um, bottle shops as well. Um, and then, yeah, I guess we do do on-premise. We're um, scaling up on-premise at the moment, and we're seeing you know really good results, like really, really good early signs there.
0: I, I think I've uh, been in touch a couple of times. We've had messages through Brews News because we've covered um, better beer, and so people have come through to our site thinking that it's your site. And so contacting us and the passion (laughs) for people actually seeking it out if they can't find it. I mean, that speaks volumes about the, you know, the the engagement in in, in the brand. But you you just described the commercial partnership. But what is it that's resonating with consumers about the liquid or the brand?
1: Yeah, I think it's um, I listened to that podcast the other day you had with the Great Northern um, guys. And it is that new contemporary beer. I think people have had um, those full-strength VBs and 4Xs shoved down their throat for so long that when something like Great Northern or before that, Corona, with, you know, a really low um, bittering unit, when that comes through, the sessionability and something that they can drink and not have to think about, um, I think they're just really resonating with the beer. It it does taste super clean and crisp, uh, you know, in a lineup against its peers. Um, it's really enjoyable. And I've been a I've drank craft beer since you've probably heard since I was 18. And I haven't I've never had a session on VB or Carton Draft or Forex in my life. I've always found something different in the bottle shops. I'm thoroughly enjoying <laughs> drinking this beer. Um, the feedback we're getting, we get people email us saying they love the beer. Um, it's almost overwhelming um one of our real disappointments at the moment is just not getting it out to shelf quick enough Um, just pure play scaling up issue um getting cans printed cartons enough time on the canning line um you know that's probably the disappointing part at the moment so yeah hopefully get on top of that in the next couple months um yeah growing pains
0: when you look at the um success for for better beer and You know, you you had an early investment from uh, Founders First, now Mighty Craft. Um, We've seen Mighty Craft invest in a wide network of what are, by and large, still very, very small craft beer brands, and a brand like Better Beer has literally exploded onto the market. Yeah. Do you think that uh, Mighty Craft might have overestimated the growth or overestimated the potential for craft beer when a more traditional beer was a a bigger play?
1: Um, I can't, like, as you know, I'm not, like, privy to what they do. Like, I'm not part of their board or management. Um, Look, I I still think there's growth for um, craft beer. I think their brand, you know, I think Mismatch, um, Jetty Road and a few of the other brands are going really well for them, Um, you know, has any of them been an overnight out-and-out out success? Maybe not. I think Ballistic has had a really good run. That's grown really well. Um, but, yeah, I think playing in this category at a sub-$60 carton um, product with a marketing profile like the Inspired Unemployed with a relationship with Dance and BWS, it probably fast tracks all that. Um, one of my biggest concerns when starting it was, not having distribution points where everyone could find it easily. Um, so we made sure that, you know, if we were going to partner with a retailer, it would be someone that we could get it everywhere so that when we did our marketing with the boys, people could find it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think Mighty Craft, I think, yeah, I think I'm still really optimistic of that business. Um, they've just, you know, the organisation behind it and how I've been able to lean into it, um, you know, <laughs> I'm still just one person down in Torquay, we've just brought on a brand manager, but being able to bring in, we've got full-time supply chain manager now, um, we've got 40 salespeople out there sort of banging on doors, getting us tap points. Um, we've got accounting support, we've got legal support, like being able to just tap into that without going all out and hiring it from the start is really important mm. for the growth of Better Beer. Um, you know, we pay them a distribution fee. Um, and, yeah, we pretty much get access to, I think, maybe $8 bucks worth of overhead um, just by paying a distribution fee. So, yeah, I'm still pretty optimistic.
0: Which certainly works for you. But as I think uh, Claire has reported on in, in yep. the last week, some of the um, smaller brands have taken that back in-house. So the thing that was nominally the benefit to some of these small breweries obviously works at a brand at scale um, much more yeah. uh, than some of the smaller ones.
1: I definitely think it works better at a brand with scale.
0: Um, which is a, a lot about the <laughs> brewing industry, I think. Um, now, mate, yeah. just very quick, I'm, I'm conscious of how of how, <laughs> of how long we've gone. Um, and I, I do want to circle back to that very, um, one of the very early points that you made. You, you referred to one of your early brands as it was one of your unsuccessful businesses. And, you know, yeah. that you were allowed it to fail fast. Um, and it sounds like even yeah. something like K-Booch. Again, I, I don't want to be putting words in your mouth, but was K-Booch one of the brands that you would sort of put as one of your unsuccessful Businesses, or was that in the success column because of what it introduced you to?
1: Yeah, I think that. I think life's all about moments. Um, I think it got me a foot in the door with retailers, like they love the product. It got me a foot in the door with Mitacraft. Did it fail? Yes. Did we lose any money? Probably not. Um, so yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll put that in the failed brands, but it might it might return one day.
0: Okay, but nothing is a failure if you learn from it, which is, I think, one of the uh, entrepreneur manifestos. So, just to finish up, if if you know, if I can ask, you know, what are you know two or three of the Nick Cogger key learnings that you've learned from, um, you know, failing over a long period of time? Um, and and I, I don't, I don't, I don't say that in any way judgmentally. No, but you uh,
1: know,
0: When you look at the brands that you've started, and now you've got a better beer that has just exploded. You know, what yeah. have you learned over that process?
1: Um just always keep learning. Um, you know, you just have to keep learning and whether you have to force that in by reading as many business books, listening to as many podcasts, like I do get a lot out of when you go through the history books of the 90s and the 80s with some of the old brewers. Um and just becoming a glutton for knowledge, I think has probably helped me. Um yeah, some of the brands that I've launched don't work, but I think (laughs) I can't put my finger on sometimes why they haven't worked, but I think just always just keep learning and you know, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, then it's time to change rooms and level up and learn off someone who's smarter than you.
0: It's interesting you say that, you know, sometimes you can't work out why the businesses haven't failed, but there is a um, school of thought that, you know, 99% or 90% of success is just turning up. And sooner or later, your time yeah. does come around. Um, you know, one of the famous examples of that is JK Rowling submitted Harry Potter, yeah. you know, 15, 16 publishers. Who said no, and if she'd stopped at fourteen, we wouldn't have the Harry Potter franchise and nothing about the book changed. It was just finding the right champion. How much of it is, you know, how much of better beer is just finding the right thing at the right time in the same way that arguably Fat Yak did back in
1: two thousand and nine, or you know? Yeah, I definitely think that everything at Better Beer and like we are talking now, like we've been around for two or three years and it's been continued success, which we promise we will have, Matt, but Um, It it is early days still. Uh, There's a lot of water or beer to be brewed. Um, Yeah, I think just being persistent, like I'm persistent, I'm as persistent as they come. Um, You know, I'll always be looking at um, ways to improve myself. Um, You know, is it being lucky or is it being, you know, hard work and learning from mistakes um, and just absorbing yourself in the industry that you're in? I think those things can help. But it also helps sometimes when, you know, you launch a brand and you've got an Instagram following of 1.3 million, which can get your message across in um, rapid time.
0: Well, Nick Cogger, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And, uh, you know, congratulations on the success of uh, Better
1: Beer. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for um, the chat. And I'll no doubt be talking to you in the future. And that was Nick Cogger.
0: thanks for listening to that conversation. Now here's a little bonus for you. As I hear from Lark Distilling's master distiller, Chris Thompson, who tells me a little bit more about Lark's collaboration with brewer, Wolf of the Willows. I asked Chris, what is it about this whiskey and beer that really works
2: for him? Firstly, let's start about what's amazing about this collaboration in terms of the liquid. The liquid that we take is completely polar opposite to a Johnny Smoke Porter. So the whiskey component is this bright, Fun, fruity, tropical piece, right? And then the beer is like this dark, heavy, velvety, incredibly thick, viscous. You know, it's got bitter, and it also has has sweet that play off each other. So that's the beer. And when you bring them together, then what happens is the the whiskey is kind of like a, a prism. So you think Pink Floyd for me. You have the prism, and the the beer shines through it. But what the what it does by adding extra brightness, uh, lift. And alcohol to the beer, it separates the beer out, and then you can see every single component that made that beer. When we're making the whiskey, in our mind, what we're trying to do is showcase the beer in a different way. Now, the Johnny Smoke Porter is such a complex and rich beer, but with the alcohol of the of the whiskey coming through it, then you can see each of those each of those components. That's the magic of this this whiskey, um, and the magic of the, the collaboration. Like, in all seriousness, being a whiskey nut for 15-plus years now, there is not a single whiskey on the planet that looks like this. It does everything that you would expect a whiskey to do, but in a completely different way. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, like, it's exhilarating. It's exciting, like no other whiskey. Yeah, well, it's probably it's my favourite whiskey to make every year because of that.
0: So as a distiller with 15 years' experience, what has Chris learned from his experience in partnering with a brewer?
2: Yeah, probably that I'm... A, bit dumb. So I started off and was like, no, this isn't going to work. There's no chance that I'll, you know, this whole thing, I was so sceptical. And then we went through sort of one, so we sort of take different casts that look a bit different and we mix it with the beer and be like, what does it taste like? Oh, it doesn't taste very good. And we did that about seventh time. where It was actually the very last whiskey um, sort of representation of the portfolio of what our casts have that we tried, that it was like, oh, wow, that's like incredible. We have to do this. And at that point, I don't even think I'd spoken to Scotty. I think um, one of my outsiders, Johnny, had been speaking to, to Scotty about it and I called Scotty. I was like, we've got to do this thing. I'm excited now. So um, what I learned was that I don't know what I'm talking about at least five years ago. Don't trust your instincts and try everything. Um, and then from there, there what we try to do each year is provide the same backbone of flavour Um, But do it in a slightly different way.
0: So, if Chris was surprised that this collaboration could work, how has that changed over the course of five iterations of this whiskey?
2: You know, wolf number one was just about um, a pure expression of balance. Wolf number two was um, trying to provide the most of this sort of prism experience with the, the beer shining through and just showcasing. The third one was about. Excess. Absolutely. There should be too much of everything going on all of the time. And it was just this outrageous, over the top thing. The Wolf number four, which is my favorite, it's actually my favorite whiskey um, that we've done in my 15 years. So, you know, 500,000 whiskeys that I've blended. Um, That's my number one. I've got three bottles at home and they seem to go. It used to be four bottles. So (laughs) it's probably a a pretty good sign. Wolf number four was to me, just this balanced experience that just it just showcased everything that was great in the beer and just it was just a little piece of um, exhilaration. It's just every time I try it, I just can't believe how much is going on in that. Uh, how easily you can see every component of the beer, but also the whiskey. But it's only flashes really quickly as it moves on to the next experience, I suppose, the next flavour. And then this year, this year is the one with the most beer in it. So usually, what would happen? Is that we'd fill the casks all the way up with the whiskey to soak the beer out. But we haven't done that this year. We've actually only sort of 60% filled them. So the ratio of beer to whiskey is way higher. And so this year the the beer sits as this kind of solid block within the whiskey and it just showcases it in a completely different way which is just which is really magical and then if you add water to the whiskey which sort of changes the surface tension then it just erupts and launches out which is just yeah there's no whiskey like it on the planet and it's just as you can tell i get pretty excited
0: finally with so much detail already provided i asked chris just how this whiskey is made
2: in terms of making this thing there's this like horrific logistics thing that you've got to go through so we send barrels of whiskey or, or barrels that have held classic cask, which is one of, I think it's the most popular Australian whiskey ever sold, I think. So it's like, it's our, one of our flagships. And just, yeah, if you haven't tried it, definitely try it. It's pretty cool. So these are export and sherry whiskey um, barrels, mostly from Seblesfield Winery and mostly the wood for those will be at least a hundred years old. So they would have held wine in it and then they've held fortified either a sherry or a port in it for you know 60, 70 years, probably refilled a couple of times, sort of, you know, through its period. But yeah, generally, generally around hundred year old um, in terms of when it was chopped down as a tree. We get those, we fill it full of our whiskey. Then we empty our whiskey out, send them straight up to Melbourne, to, um, to Wolf, to, to Scotty. Scotty puts the beer in it, so it soaks out all this kind of porty, sherry, sweet um, whiskeys, um, raises the ABV. But then we have an issue, because if, if Scotty just empties the barrels out and then sticks the buns back in and sh- ships them back to us in Tassie, then the chance of oxidization, the chances of the beer changing in a really negative way, you know, infection as well, are really high. And so the good thing about the product that we make being you know, 60 plus percent, is it freezes that that process, it freezes that, you know, those changes in the barrel. And so yeah, what we actually do is we ship the whiskey up, so we'll blend the whiskey against what last year's um, beer was, get a pretty good idea of what it should be, And then what we'll do is we'll ship the whiskey up to to Scotty to put in the beer barrels. And so they'll empty the barrels, and within 20 seconds of that barrel being emptied, there's whiskey going into that barrel. Um, And so you freeze and you capture the pure essence of that amazing beer, which is a pain in the ass, to be honest, but it's it's the right thing to do. It's what makes the whiskey so good.
0: So that's a little bit about Lark's Wolf Release 5, launching on August 8th this year. I know I'm looking out for this one. Watch out for a few more chats about beer and whiskey in the coming weeks, including a chat with Scott from Wolf of the Willows.